It is good to be back and to be with my home church family. Though I was told they adopted me into their church family, but we'll see how that goes over time. But it's, it's great to be back. And I do want to spend a few minutes just kind of debriefing the experience with you as well as sharing a word. Um, just a, a little background. We, we called our project this year called Good Rain 11. And uh, it for the year 2011, they invited us to be a good rain. A good rain is a rain that comes back over and over again. And sometimes we had rain almost every day. It would rain for a half an hour to an hour. One day it rained almost half a day, but that was kind of unusual for them. But we, we had a great experience. We had two components, really. This time was one of the initiatives we did was with the local pastors that we worked with, the 55 of them. We also worked with the midwives. And we have opportunities down the road. Believe it or not, the churches virtually do nothing with children. They do not try to teach children at all. And they are wrestling with that issue of how to do that. And we really can be a great assistance to them as they begin to learn how to teach children the Bible from a very young age. But I had just many, many memories. You know, one of the, some of it's just the things that frustrate you and you've got to laugh about all at the same time. You know, one of the phrases, uh, we bought a cheap little cell phone to use there. And you could buy minutes like, a, you know, a dollar at a time. And you could get minutes everywhere. Your car stopped. People came out with these yellow vests on everywhere. It didn't matter. It all, it all trying to, you know, it was just wild. But, you know, um, but we'd be running late. And I would call Tofield to see where he was because he's supposed to be showing up with a car. And he wouldn't even say hello. He'd just say, I am coming. I am coming. You know, and uh, so that kind of, we're going to name him, I think. I am coming next time when he comes over here again. Because they gave us names, you know, Rwanda names. So we're going to name him, I am coming. So I taught him a new word. At least I think it's right in Spanish, called Vamanos, we, meet, we go. So he'd show up and say, Vamanos, Vamanos, we go, we got to get going. Because, uh, you know, we just had so much to teach these guys, it was hard to run behind. And, but, you know, um, we'd get back from teaching through the course of the day. We, we'd finish like at 5.30. We wouldn't get out of there till like 6.15 because there's all these logistics you got to do. We'd get back to the house and then they'd say, well, what, what do you want to have for dinner? Chicken, beef, whatever. You know, and, and it doesn't sound, it sounds great, right? But... The chicken is like, <clears throat> anyways, but you say, well, I will have beef, you know, and then 930 it gets served because they got to fire up the charcoal. They got to go buy everything. They got to be, you know, so we were just eating really late. So we got very fond of these self-serves. We would drive down into the city. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet, but we usually got there late enough that, that uh, and they always freaked out because if you took more than one piece of beef, they got really upset. One meat, one meat, one meat, you know, anyways. So, um, we also learned that they don't do anything on contracts over there. You know, we go down, we get a, you pull a, you know, you set up an account with the electrical company, you pay, they send you a bill when you get done, you pay for everything in advance, your phones, and then we found out the hard way with the electricity. We got there and, and, and um, Friday night, the power goes out about 10:15. We were just climbing in the bed, well, I figured it's out in the neighborhood because it had gone out a couple times. We get up in the morning, the power's still out. So we ended up taking these cold, it was like one of the coldest mornings, in these cold bucket baths. Well, it turned out our meter had run out of electricity. They run down to a store and they, you know, you pay a few thousand francs, which is like three or four dollars or something. And they come back and they type a code in and 10, 10 kilowatt hours appear in your meter. And when those are all gone, it turns off again. So I learned where the meter was and I tracked it myself from then on out because I didn't want, you know, it was bad enough taking a bath out of a bucket, you know, kind of idea. And, uh, but we stayed in a place like I call, refer to it now as the bar sandwich because on both sides of us, there were bars. You know, they, they looked like houses, but 
in the one in the, on the left side, where it, it towards the front of the house, they they you know they guys were there watching soccer games. I think till three in the morning. They're making tons of noise, playing music, etc. And then just on the other side of the wall from me, there was a bar that faced the, the next street up. Streets a relative term there, but anyways, and and so there was just noise everywhere. And then at five thirty every morning, the Ugandan Christians. Their, one of their strategies for evangelizing people is using a megaphone at 5.30 in the morning to preach the gospel. I'm thinking, how can you win friends and influence people at 5.30 in the morning on a megaphone, you know? And it was, oh, anyways. But it's just, you just kind of get used to all that stuff with a little bit of time. And, but there's some things that are just, uh, you know, just, just things that bring joy. We, we had a, a seven, we had set three 73-year-old pastors who were part of this training. They slept on mattresses on the floor of this church facility for a month. 73 years of age. There was no running water. They had a spigot outside where they could fill a bucket. And they kind of bathed in one of the two stalls. And meals were served about 100 yards up behind the house by a, a family that ran a local place that prepared food. And we hired them for the month to, to make food for all these pastors. And, you know, just the, the imagery, you know, of... One of them, uh, the, the guy who kind of serves as Tofield's assistant, you know, when he got his new suit on that Wednesday, you know, he came dancing down the center aisle in his new herringbone suit. You, you know, it was like, you know, so anyway, it was, they, 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 they dance all the time. They cannot conceive of showing joy without dancing. So when their choir's singing their services, everybody's dancing and, you know, so you learn... But that part, you know, I could get by with. It was the jumping part. You know, I could, I could never get that right. You know, a couple times people came over and said, you're not doing it right. You know, anyway. So I am definitely dancing challenged as we went along. But there's another guy there. He's 73 years of old. His name was Elijah. He's a pastor in the Congo. He's one of the guys who fled the country in, in around 1959, 1960. He's been pastoring in the Congo ever since. He was uh, actually Tofield's father-in-law. In the course of a month, he went through two pens. We gave him two brand new pens. And he used up every ounce of ink in both of those pens in the course of a month, just filling up the books. We gave him some notebooks to take notes in, and we gave him notes every day, and he was writing all over those. And, and he was the only guy in the entire month that never fell asleep once. I mean, you know, you guys are sitting in nice, comfortable chairs. These, they had like these plastic stacking chairs that you might have in your backyard. You might have four or six of those for when you have a big group. That's what they sat in for a month. No tables. And, that, and those were an upgrade because the church, was, we had to rent those. The church only had benches besides that. And so we, we did these things. And um, it was really a, a, a tremendous experience. There were a few, few, few things. I mean, we, I encountered a man. Um, they loved to serve their sodas at room temperature. You know, so it's Fanta. You know, they had like Fanta citrus, Fanta orange, and Coke. You know, and then they had tonic. And they loved to serve it to you like at 75, 80 degrees. I hate soda that's not cold. You know, so, so you'd have that with lunch, and, you know, we'd go up there. They wouldn't start serving lunch till we got there. And then, you know, we'd take normal plates. They would take these big mounds of food. No wonder they slept through the whole afternoon. But anyway, and they were always saying, what's the matter with you guys? You sick? Well, how come you're not eating more? You know, that kind of thing. And, but then you get these warm sodas. So there was a, there's a little store. Store is, again, a loose term. Just a, about 100 yards down from where the church building was. So that, and she had a small cooler in there. So I could go down and at least get a soda that was at 60 degrees instead of at 80 degrees. And, uh, well, I was in there one time getting one just before the afternoon session started. We would teach from about 8.30 to 1.30, 2 o'clock, and then we'd have lunch. And then we'd go on from there. And, um, 
And I encountered a young a guy in there by the name of Victor. And he was, he was having a beer and standing kind of like at the counter there. And he said, I need to stop doing this, referring to drinking a beer. He said, can you advise me? You know, I had my Bible with me. And I don't think there's too many white people hanging around that aren't involved with mission projects. So he, can you advise me? And I asked him if he read his Bible. He said he didn't have one. So we arranged to get him a Bible and connected him with the pastor of the church there, with just up the, the, the few hundred yards from, a few hundred feet from there, and, and um, gave him the Bible. And I told him, I said, the biggest thing you need is a change of heart to go along with the, the attempt and change of behavior. And so we pray for Victor and his relationship with Vincent that it will grow. And uh, it can be different there. The facilities are, are significantly different. Um, the building we met in is, was mud block, tin roof. When it rained, it was really loud. Four small little windows. It was very dark in there, even in the brightest of days. One facility that I preached in on a Sunday morning, they had big open windows. They just had no glass in them. So in the middle of my sermon, I'm just getting to the climax, it starts pouring out, and the wind is just blowing, and the rain is just blowing in through the window, and people are pulling umbrellas out on the inside of the building to keep them getting wet. It was just really a hoot as you go along. And um, anyway, it's just a lot of different experiences. But I'll tell you the. The thing that probably I'll remember the most is just the applause. You know, Africans, at least in Rwandans, let me tell one other story before I get there. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not taboo in Rwanda for men to hold hands. So uh, we had gone to dinner uh, the night that Christina and Lisa had arrived back in Kigali, and we went to a, the Hotel Rwanda, and there's a nice restaurant up on the floor. It's kind of like our, our celebration at the end of the week, and, and then the teams would transition over the weekend, and... So we needed to go down and get some stuff to be able to go out to the game park at, at the next day. So we needed to go down to the market at the bottom of the hill. And we didn't have enough room in the car and, uh, for all of us because Tofiel and his wife were going to take some public transportation home after we went to the market. So, so Tofiel and Tom Dagley walked down the hill. So as we're pulling out of the parking lot, they're taking pictures of the hotel with Tom standing there. And then Tom gets down there. He says, it freaked me out a little bit. I said, what? He said, well, as soon as we started walking down the hill, Topefield grabbed my hand. He said, we're, you know, he said, for the first 30 or seconds or so, it was kind of okay, but the rest of the 10-minute walk, it was kind of freaky. <laughs> you know? So we were in the city a little, the, 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 on Sunday afternoon. Uh, they were getting a few things or whatever, and I went to grab Tom's hand and guide him down the street, and he went and pulled his hand back. <laughs> so anyways. But there were times throughout the course of the teaching uh, where the pastors would just break out into applause. You know, we'd be working through a particular text or whatever, and, and um, they would get something they hadn't gotten before, and they would just break out into applause. We had several occasions where the translators said, can we stop? I want to write this down before we go on. And they were translating for us as we went forward. And some of them weren't necessarily on things that, that maybe would strike us all that well, but I, I just want to share a few of those thoughts today, this morning. It's kind of like the context or, the, if you will, the meat of my message and and I call it stirred by way of applause. You know, Peter wrote in his second letter, he says, I, you know, I, I seek to stir you by way of reminder. So as long as I'm in this physical body, I want to stir you by way of reminder, remind you of what you already know. And, and in some ways, uh, God stirred me. And the way, he, the way I remember these, these are some of the things that stand out to me that they applauded at as the word got to them. And, and one of those is found in John's second, second chapter of the Gospel of John. And if if you follow along in our pew Bibles, you'll find the text on page 900. Many of you will recognize this experience right away. It is the very first miracle or sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And 
just, just before I read it, just a, a little context. It's Friday of the first week. I've been on my feet for 50 hours already, and we're just kind of getting into, into Friday. It's a hot day. There's absolutely no breeze. It's probably already almost 90 degrees inside this building. And um, so we're trying to work our way through some of the highlights of the Gospel of John. And we come to this particular experience. We're talking about the seven signs. I really didn't want to go to this one, but they drew us to it and said, let's talk about this. And let me just read these first 11 verses for you of John 2. It says, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus told, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. They had a lot of questions about John's response, uh, Jesus' response to his mother. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he, he called the groom and he told him, he says, everybody sets out the fine wine first. Then after people have drunk freely, in other words, they're too inebriated to be able to tell a the difference, they bring out the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, in Rwanda, wine and alcohol is a big issue among the Christians. So immediately they started to pepper me. Not only the questions about verse 4, was Jesus being disrespectful to his mother? and Why did he say this? And all these kinds of things. But also it was, was this sweet wine, like our Welch's grape juice, or was this wine wine that Jesus made? And all kinds of questions about believers drinking and all these kinds of things. And they, they practice a pretty ruthless form of church discipline on occasion over there. Ways in which uh, that they told us of an experience where if a, if a woman becomes pregnant in their church outside of wedlock, they kick her out of the church and she can never come back. Ever. And we had some quite interesting discussions as we worked through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and some of the passages that relate to that. But it was Friday. These guys were peppering me with these questions. And I... I was giving them answers and I, you know, doing all right. But, you know, it just dawned on me over the weekend that we really hadn't got at the heart of the passage. So much to my uh, reluctance, we went back to the issue of wine uh, on, in this passage on Monday. And, and, when, I, and I, when, I, when I taught it to them in its context as a sign in which Jesus is conveying a message through what he's doing, I said, you know, here's the point. I said, you, you, you've got these basins that they use for filled with water they used for ceremonial cleaning. When they arrived at the festivities, they would have washed their hands and their feet so they were ceremonially clean before they ate anything so they wouldn't become dirty in the eyes of God. And it represented all of the, the Old Testament covenant of law, trying to make yourself right and clean and keep yourself pure enough in the eyes of God. When Jesus fills those basins with water and turns it into the new wine, and the new wine is better than the old wine, it symbolizes the fact that the covenant of grace that Jesus brings at the end is just that much better than the covenant of law and performance-based salvation that we get out of the Old Testament. And they broke out into applause. They broke out into applause. I wonder if it still creates that stir in our own hearts. 
when we think about the fact that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the new, the, the covenant, the, the, the wine of the new covenant that we, we remember, which is the blood of Christ that we celebrate in the Lord's communion, is just that much better, incredibly better than trying to do righteousness all on our own underneath the covenant of law. And they broke out into applause. Another experience that just really stood out to me is found in, in Mark chapter 8. Just a little context in terms of, of this. This was the day three, first Wednesday. Tuesday had been a hard day. I thought we had just, it was just a struggle to get through Matthew and I, really wrestling with the format we were doing with and whether it was going to work and, and all those kinds of things. And, and um, you know, these guys were really struggling because they had never, ever looked at Scripture in context before. They would go find a little phrase, and that's what they would preach on. And they never really looked any deeper than that. And we had been emphasizing on Monday and then also on Tuesday. You know, when you look at the scriptures, you've got to see the forest. You've got to see the trees. You've got to see the trunk. You've got to see the branches. You've got to see the leaves. You know, and you can't just... And they were just trying to grab leaves. And so we're working through the, 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 the book of, of Mark. And, and we come to this healing in chapter 20, in verse 22 of chapter 8. It's on page 853. Let me just read this text for you just real quickly. Mark 8, 22. It says, Then they came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the side, and he brought him out of the village, and, and spitting on his hands and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and he saw it distinctly. He was cured and he could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now they wanted to fixate on verse 26. Why did Jesus tell him not to go into the village? And we talked a lot about the mark in secret or whatever. And I said, then I asked him this question. I said, why do you think it took two touches from Jesus to heal this guy? As far as I know, this is only the, the only two-touch miracle in all of the New Testament. Why did it take two touches? All across the room, raising hands. Because Jesus, his guy doubted. The guy didn't have enough faith. Or he had sin in his life. And you know, all these different th- things are popping up. And, and I said to him, I said, well, you guys could be right. And we were really trying to make a very clear emphasis between what the Bible says and what we understand it to mean. That real reverence for the Word of God. And so I said to, said to the guy, I said, well, you know, you could be right. I said, but let me tell you what I think. He says, I think Jesus did this on purpose. And they had this real confused look on their face, including my translator, who was Tofield, was working with me that day. And I said, well, let's look at this in context. Let's see some of the forest before we get down to the one tree of why he didn't, the leaf of why he didn't go and send him into the village. I said, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus feeds the 4,000. A few loaves, a few fishes, feeds everybody, baskets full left over. They leave that experience, they hop in a boat to go across to the other side. They're in the boat, they forgot to bring any of the leftovers with them. They got one piece of bread. There's 13 of them. So Jesus starts warning them about the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the, of, of the, of the Gentiles. You know, and it's the idea of, of trying to develop greatness through our own effort, whether it's through religious, re, religious type of efforts or whether it's through worldly efforts, you know. But trying to make yourself great. And he's warning them. And they say, well, well, maybe he's talking about yeast because we didn't bring any food with us. We're going to starve. This is a long journey across the lake, all this kind of stuff. And... And Jesus says, do you not yet understand? Don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Don't you remember the feeding of the 4,000? How can you be asking whether or not we're going to starve because we only got one piece of bread for 13 of us? When they get to the shore, they encounter this man. And Jesus takes him aside quietly with just the disciples and he touches his eyes and he sees just partially. And I said, just like sometimes we only see God partially. We don't get it all. 
You know, we can see God as Savior, but we struggle with Lord. We see, can see God as provider, but we don't see Him as, as the sender, you know, and all these things. And then, and then He touches His eyes again and He sees clearly. The message to us is that we need to keep learning and growing and see God clearly as for who He is. And then what happens right on the heels of that? Peter confesses Christ as the Son of God. You see what happens when God, you let God work in your life so you can see clearly. And they broke out into applause. And I will tell you, it wasn't as much about the truth of God needing to touch their eyes so they could see more clearly. But they understood the power of seeing the Word in context. That they no longer had to just kind of grab for little pieces here and there to somehow hope to have some kind of a message to share with their churches. But they were finally seeing the light of how God really can speak with power through His Word. Through everything that He shared in His redemptive activity that we find in the Scriptures. And they broke out into applause. And here's a group of guys who have a Bible in their own language. It's a terrible translation. We've got to ask one question. Why is Paul called the ninth apostle? What? what? The ninth apostle? And, you know, and, and, so, and, and so where do you get that? So they're you know, reading it. Says, you know, it was like one untimely born. The last of the apostles was like one untimely born. Instead of the word last, they had used the, the phrase the ninth child. And that was supposedly like a paraphrase for what it meant to be the last. They have an awful translation. We learned, we have to go back, all right, what does it say? You know, let's figure this out. You know, they got, they got the Bible in their own language. They have no cross-references, no concordances, no Bible dictionaries, no commentaries, no Sunday school lesson quarterlies, no, really, literally no radio to listen to. No nothing. They, they just, it's just their word, that word. And these guys would just go find a little phrase like, do not grow weary in doing good. And they would just go preach for an hour with whatever they could come up with. And, and they would tell us that what they would do is they would just supplement content with exuberance. And so we got done studying this passage. And after they had broken out into applause, one of their leading pastors, pastors of one of the largest churches, stood up and he said, I don't want you to come to my church because I know I don't handle the Word of God right. I'm grateful I'm learning, but I know I don't handle it right. He said, you know what? You need to become our spiritual father, and we will become your spiritual children. Keep coming and teaching us. And they broke out into applause. Just one last experience of being stirred by way of applause. It comes from the end of the Gospel of Mark. Many of you who are kind of into this thing know that the last 11 verses of the Gospel of Mark are disputed as to whether or not they were in the original text or not. You'll see in your Bibles uh, that they are bracketed. That means that there's a reference there to the fact that some commentaries do not have, some versions of ancient text do not include these verses. And so we got to the end of the, God, the book of Mark and, and we came to these verses and I was all prepared to do all this explanation about why these verses were in brackets, you know, about textual variants and all through the ages and the different areas of the church and all that kind of stuff. And so we read this and let me just read a, a verse 14 through, through 18. It says, Later he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been resurrected. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will never harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. 
So I'm in the midst of giving all this explanation about why these things are bracketed and then the fact that this was probably included because there was no form of the Great Commission to Mark without it and all this kind of stuff. And, and this very simple pat I mean, he was wearing like sweatpants and a shirt the whole time. You know, a lot of these guys only had two pairs of clothes with them for the whole month. And one of his sets was like a sweatshirt that he had gotten somewhere. And real simple guy, he raises his hand. And he said, what would you tell us to say to people who say, well, where's your anointing to heal people by laying on of hands? See, they have the guys who come through Rwanda who set up the big tents and have all the crowds come and they have the dramatic things and people come down the aisle in wheelchairs and they pray over them. They jump up and throw their wheelchairs and run out. And, and the people in these villages are saying, well, where's your anointing? You know, where's your anointing to, to do this stuff? And he said, what? What would you have us say to people that we don't have this special anointing? How would you answer that question? That question and another one that I got, which was, our churches are small. They can't pay us anything. We dig, which means they're farmers, and our crops are very poor. What advice would you have for us? That question and this one is the one that troubled my soul the most. And I looked at this pastor and I said, you know, I said, it may not be the answer that you're looking for. But as a pastor whose job it is is to feed the sheep so they can grow in Christ, so they can be the children of God that God has called them to be. Far more important to you is the anointing to teach the Word of God with accuracy than even to lay on heal, hands on people and heal them of their physical illness. So if you want to pray for an anointing, if you want to have a sense of credibility among your flock, it's based upon the anointing that God gives you to be able to clearly teach the Word of God. Because that's what changes people's lives from the inside out. And they broke out into applause. And we're not a whole lot different, are we? You know, the greatest power that God can give us is to live like children of God with peace, with hope, with love, with joy, with mercy in our homes, places where we work, in our everyday lives. And yet what often impresses us is not that power, but it's the dramatic stuff that's used by God to draw people's attention to the gospel. But the real power of God is giving us His power to live like His people day in and day out. I wonder if we'll break out into applause. <coughs> God's greatest gift to us is his power to live the life that he's given us. Because we've been born again to a living hope. Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. We wait for those miraculous deliverances, those healings, those incredible signs that God has done, the unexplainable. But the greatest gift God gives us is a gift of his Holy Spirit and his word so that you and I know how to live with wisdom and knowledge and partake of the divine nature in each and every day of our lives. And that should make us break out into applause. Mm. Let's pray together. God, all around the world, in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, people are just yearning to know you. What marvelous skills our adversary has in distracting us from what's truly important. Where those who are faithfully laboring to be your children and harvest fields that nobody even else thinks about can doubt their value because they don't impress other people. God, thank you for the covenant of grace. And thank you that it's just that much better than the covenant of law. That mercy experienced through faith, letting you do for us what we can never do for ourselves, is an incredible gift. May we break out in applause, Father. God, for the great gift of your word and our need to allow you to touch our spiritual eyes, that we can see you more clearly through it. And God, that we might value that which is truly important and the greatest gift you've given us, that we can 
through your presence in us, through the power of the Spirit, live as your children each and every day. We thank you for that, Father. And today we are stirred by way of applause. So we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? And I want to invite our ushers to come forward and receive our offering as we sing. Let's sing with a spirit of joy. And even for this one Sunday, if you want to break out and dance, you're welcome to do that, all right?